0: Well, good morning. morning. Uh, We continue our series in the Gospel of John this morning by turning to our reading in John chapter 7, verses 32 to 52. And this is what it says. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you too from Galilee? Search and see that no prophet arrives from Galilee. Amen. Uh, Now, our text this morning uh, presents to us three possible responses to Jesus Christ. Uh, Three ways in which humanity reacts to having heard the words of truth. Uh, The first, as we see in the outset of our text, is to respond in utter confusion. Uh, That was what we see in verses 32 to 36, where Jesus uh, alludes to the fact that his time among the people is running out only for it to result in confusion. This, uh, in our text, uh, can be added to by a second response to Christ uh, seen in the rejection, particularly by the religious leaders in verses 41 to 52. It's different from the first group who were unable to grasp the message. I mean, here, uh, these people quite clearly understand what Jesus claims to be, but they seek to silence him. And so as we see in this chapter, uh, and indeed much of the book, uh, we can see confusion and we can see rejection to the words of truth. There is, of course, and rather blessedly, a third option, and that is belief. Now, beyond confusion, in contrast to rejection, we discover that there are some who believe, Uh, there are some who receive the truth and find themselves utterly transformed. And that is the purpose of verses 37 to 40. It is a transformation that is talked about not just for that moment, not just for those who were able to see Jesus walking around on the earth. Uh, Quite clearly in this text we see that this is a a transformation, a change for all those who believe uh, because it talks about this river of living water that was yet to be poured out after Jesus was glorified. And so down through the generations we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit described as a river of living water that is available to all who believe these are the three responses to our text uh, uh, confusion uh, rejection and belief now they remain the exact same responses that we have today and so i shall briefly look at these before turning our focus on this living water so, confusion. I suppose that is the watchword when it comes to the response in verses 32 to 36. Jesus speaks to the people. Now He is very much aware that his days are numbered. There is, a, therefore, an urgency behind his message because time is running out. And yet, as we see here, the people completely fail to grasp what he alludes to. Now, confusion has been something of a theme so far in the Gospel, Jesus will speak clearly and quite plainly on occasion, but it is met with this complete incomprehension by the part of the hearers. I think of the wonder of Nicodemus in chapter 3 when he's told he needs to be born again. He says, Well, how? How can that be? In John 4, the woman at the well, when told about the living water, she looks to Jesus and says, How can you get the water? You don't have a bucket. In John 6, when Jesus declares uh, that he is the bread of life, it is met with confusion and anger. Clearly, a response of utter incomprehension is entirely possible when faced with the truth. And we should not be surprised when we encounter that today. It is possible to be so blind that we fail to see him for who he is, so deaf that we are unable to have the ears to hear the truth even when plainly spoken. However, that's not the only response. Uh, As we see in our text, and as I'm sure we are aware today, there are those who do hear, who do grasp. It's not as if everybody misses the point. It's not as if Jesus just leaves a wake of confused people wherever he goes. There are many who understand, who grasp. But, as we see here amongst the religious leaders, there are those who hear exactly what he says, can understand exactly what he claims, and yet still choose to reject him. So many examples. Even ourselves, sometimes when we see, even when we hear, our hearts can be hard to the truth. The truth can be recognized and still rejected, resisted. Uh, and in our text, that's really where uh, verses 4 to 1 to 52 come through. And we see a degree of rejection that becomes increasingly clear. Uh, it's so much of a rejection that there's a, a lethal hostility from the religious leaders. Uh, so from John uh, 5 verse 18, we saw this, uh, this intent to silence Jesus by killing him. They want Jesus dead because he claimed to be God. I mean, they understood what he was saying. They understand exactly who he claims to be, but they choose to reject him. And that hostility continues into our chapter, uh, from the beginning to the end of this chapter. It's a hostility that leads to a number of attempts to arrest him. Uh, it's a hostility that leads to a number of attempts on his life, uh, John 10:31 being the next one. Uh, ultimately, it leads to his crucifixion, a death sentence based on the fact that they understood exactly what Jesus was saying, but they wanted to reject it utterly. It's interesting actually here that they even use scripture to try and buttress their rejection, to try and shore up their arguments. Uh, as you see in verse 42, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? I love in the fact that even in their denials they confirm who he is. On both counts, Jesus can show that he fulfills the scriptures. It doesn't matter because their minds are made up. As Nicodemus points out, in their efforts to get Jesus, they're even willing to break their own laws. And yet instead of seeing what they've become, instead of pulling back from the precipice, they respond with derision. I mean, the dismissive manner in which they respond to Nicodemus and reject Christ is seen in the disdain toward any notion that a man of God could come from Galilee. As we see in verse 52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I find it interesting that in their attempts to d- dismiss Christ, they become so blinkered in that attempt that they ignore the obvious truths all around them not just that he was indeed from the line of David, not just that he was indeed born in Bethlehem, but in actual fact, if they had such the scriptures, they would know uh, that a prophet did come from Galilee. I mean, we know that Jonah uh, came from Galilee, we're told that in 2 Kings 14.25, and actually according to their own traditions that they themselves had, uh, the prophet Nahum came from Capernaum, uh, that same region. (laughs) Their own traditions and the scriptures uh, defy their point but they are determined to reject Jesus. I've seen it so many times, where people, uh, not because of a lack of evidence, not because they cannot see what is the the truth, but because they do not want to believe, still reject Jesus Christ. But I praise God that what is a natural response in confusion and rejection uh, is not the only possible outcome. Despite all of this, despite the confusion, in contrast to them and those who would reject, our text this morning tells us that there are those who believe, who hear, who receive, who repent and call him Lord. The gospel has presented this contrast from the beginning. Uh, we see it in the belief of the disciples in chapter 2 in Cana. Uh, in contrast to all of those who would drink the miraculous wine, in contrast to all of those who saw the miracle take place, it is just the disciples who grasp who Jesus is. Uh, we see it in the belief of the woman at the well. Uh, initially, it's a contrast to the confusion of Nicodemus. But ultimately, she grasps it. And so, do, so too do the people of her town. We see it in the belief in the official at the end of chapter 4, which is in contrast to all the other people who just simply want to see a miracle without having to accept the Christ. So within the Gospel, there is this constant contrast. We have confusion versus understanding. We've got hostility compared to belief. Ultimately, here in the Gospel, we have a contrast between those who are seeking his death and those who are willing to accept life from his hand. And as I've alluded to already, it's not a contrast that is simply restricted to that book. It is something that continues to this very day, every time people encounter Christ. We do see people who hear the gospel and fail to grasp what is being said. We see people who who fail to, to, to appreciate who he is. We also see people who do grasp it and reject him utterly. And I have to be honest and say that it is a drama that is played out in our own hearts. All too often. We can allow ourselves to become hard of hearing. Perhaps we think we've heard it before. Uh, Perhaps the things of the world have distracted us. Perhaps our circumstances have overwhelmed us. And we do not hear. Perhaps Jesus is telling us something we don't want to hear. (laughs) There have been times in my life that God has told me to do certain things I didn't want to do. And after the first few times, I learned to listen the first time. You know, I've read the book of Jonah. I come from an island. You'd think I wouldn't need any more warning. And yet, it is all too easy for us to reject, to resist, even as the people of God. And so to us, there is hope For those who believe. As our text tells us this morning, it's not just that we believe and we can just hold on until one day that we see him. It says here that those who believe can be transformed. What a wonderful, glorious hope we have. Not just in a distant future, but in the present. Because it's not a transformation that we achieve. I praise God daily in the fact that it's not up to me to pull my boots up far enough or to put in enough effort or to try hard enough that will see me being changed, that will see this glorious transformation taking place. Instead, it is a work of God. As you see in verses 37 to 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. A complete change from the dry desert that would be a proper description of where we naturally are. Now I find it interesting that Jesus says these words, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, at the time during the Feast, there was a particular emphasis on water. It was one of the key themes during the Feast. Uh, there was a specific uh, water ritual that would take place uh, on each of the first six days. It required that the priests marched in a, a, in a great procession down to the pool of Siloam, and uh, where they would fill a, a golden vessel with water. They would then march back up to the temple, accompanied by all the people. The people would be shouting out, uh, Therefore, with joy, you will bring water out of the wells of salvation. It's a, a quote from Isaiah uh, 12, verse 3. And then at the temple, the priests would go round the altar with a vessel of water. They would pour the water out all over that altar as an offering to God. It was to bring to mind the water that God provided the people in the desert. Uh, Exodus 17, 1-7, Numbers uh, 21 uh, uh, 1 to 13. Uh, so these people are in the desert and the water comes from the rock and uh, there's this miraculous provision of water for the people. And this was part of the great celebration, to focus on the water that God provided. Now they did this water ritual uh, for, for six days and then the Sabbath day and then they had an eighth day, the, 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 the final day, the, the last celebratory day, but this was a dry day without the water. And it is on that dry day, following a week where they've been focusing on the physical water that God had provided, that Jesus stands up publicly and very loudly declares that he can provide what they need for their spiritual thirst. He has no doubt who he's claiming to be. There is no doubt and he does it so obviously and plainly and publicly. He is capable of seeing them changed into people who have life flowing out of them. To be a people that have the Holy Spirit living in them and working through them. And I love the fact that this gospel message starts with Christ. Oh, Yes, it may often not be grasped, it may well be rejected, but we see those who believe can be transformed through the Holy Spirit living in them. And so as we actually read on in our Bibles, we discover that the disciples who believed Christ, they receive this river of living water. It pours into them and then it pours out of them and it changes the world because they take that message. They take it to those who are in Jerusalem. They take it to Judea. They take it to Samaria. They take it to the ends of the world. And people believe. People are transformed. And so, yes, there are those, as we read on, who are confused. Simon the sorcerer sees this life and he wants to try and buy it. We see people who reject the Sanhedrin, who would murder the people who would proclaim this message. But we do, of course, see this belief and this transformation. There are so many. Uh, I think of the the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, I think of Paul, who would then become an apostle, having been an enemy of God. We think of the Philippian jailer. We think of thousands of others who believe and are transformed and transformed utterly. And so from that moment until now, that river of the Holy Spirit has been poured out, bringing life where once there was death, transforming people from the enemies to the children of God, all the way down to us. Now, when Jesus makes his claim to be the source of living water, he is, of course, once again telling them that he is God. As verse 38 notes, Jesus is aligning himself with Scripture. He says, as Scripture says. And when he does this, he points to actually a number of texts that make this point. We've had some of them uh, already earlier on. But I mean, there's others. I mean, we think of the texts which say about God providing these rivers of living water in Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. And they all look to a time when God will pour out the Holy Spirit into his people so that we don't have to just simply try hard enough, that we don't have to rely on our own strength, but that we can turn to him and have hope that this is not what we're doomed to be. I I sadly don't have time to go through every single one of those, (laughs) but I will therefore do one of them. Um, Ezekiel 47, maybe one of the more famous examples. So I'm going to read a text out from Ezekiel 47, verses 1 to 5. Uh, If you have your text with you, uh, follow it, or you'll be able to read it from the back. Then he brought me to the back, to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward, and with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep and he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep and he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the water had risen it was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through now uh, from verses 2 to 5 we have here this idea that this prophet he's going out uh, we're measuring a stream of water that emerges from the temple where God resides and it goes first via the altar The place of sacrifice. And from that moment, the water, the further it goes, gets deeper and deeper. It goes from an easily measured stream, uh, only ankle deep, and then knee deep, and then waist deep, before it becomes a river so powerful that no one could cross it without being swept away. Now, this is a river of living water. We know that because of what the rest of the chapter says. If I'd read on, we would discover that this river brings life wherever it goes. Instead of being contaminated by what it touches, this water transforms everything it comes in contact with. It has a fullness of life. The river brings life wherever it goes, even into the midst of death. The Dead Sea becomes a body of water that is teeming with life. In fact, there's an emphasis on this spectacular abundance of life as soon as it comes into contact with this water. It is living water and it brings life wherever it goes. Now, The lesson here that we're supposed to take is not just simply that when God touches your life, that everything is all nice and pretty and wonderful. That is not the intent. I'm afraid we know all too well that for the present we still live in a world that is fallen, that is broken. We live with the consequences of living in that fallen world. But we have a God who saves. We have a God who transforms. We have a God who restores and who will one day reverse the fall itself. Through his transforming power, Ezekiel sees that God will ultimately, and still in our future, vanquish sickness and death. He will usher in new life, destroying sin, raising up his people. This is what God has in mind and he shows it to Ezekiel. Now it's very important in the context of Ezekiel to have this message because it's a message of hope. Ezekiel lives amongst a despairing people. And so we have a climax to a book for people who find themselves exiled in a foreign land. You have the shame of a shattered city and a broken temple. It is a message to a people who are finished, who are spent, because they need to know that God is not. He sees their failure. He sees their brokenness, and he says, I have a plan. And it is far more glorious than you can possibly imagine. Exactly what they needed to hear. Now, it may well be that we too can be haunted by failures or hobbled by brokenness. And yes, we too await that glorious moment when we have that final restoration. But it's not simply about what God will do in the distant future. In Ezekiel's vision, uh, uh, there's this wonderful moment. Of course, you know the river is, is, is deepening, it's getting deeper and deeper. In his vision, we, we see him going further and further, ankle, knee, waist, deep. and then he has stopped. He is prevented from going any further. There is a time yet to come, he sees, when that river really flows. Similar to what we read here in John. Uh, Even there, in John, John is writing that these are the words of Jesus and yet we know that he is to be uh, uh, glorified and uh, he is to, to ascend to glory and after that the river will flow. We do not simply live for a distant future. We do not just simply just sit here and wait until we get to glory. The river flows even today and we're not in the ankle-deep, knee-deep, or waist-deep section. We are in the deep end. We're in the river that sweeps things away. There's a mighty transforming river. Now We can be the witnesses of a dramatic changing power of God in our lives now. That's the import of this. It means that we cannot be content with a trickle or with dipping our toes or paddling around the edges of the river. We cannot allow ourselves to be satisfied with a sprinkling of God in our lives. Instead, we are to be immersed in that water, carried away with God. The river flows, it brings life. People believe, and they are to be transformed. But to be blunt, that river is moving on, regardless of what part we take. <laughs> uh, I love the fact that God in his, is in the temple in, in, in Ezekiel, and so they've got all these walls all around, it doesn't stop God. He bursts out by the place of sacrifice, pointing to the death of Jesus Christ, and from there bringing life. He cannot be contained, no matter what we do. I simply think it's a choice of whether we are in that river or not. Does the river flow into you? Does it change you? Does it restore you and give you life? If the answer is no, then there is hope for you. And then from there, these rivers are not supposed to be bottled up. They're not supposed to be contained. They are supposed to flow through you. And so from there they should flow through you and change the world around you. Uh, The water should pour out. It should create life wherever it goes. And so this wonderful river that can indeed overcome confusion and rejection can blossom in believing and the saving power of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful hope we have. Not just in the distant future when all things will be made new, but even now when God looks at you and loves you and doesn't leave you where you are, but says, come with me and be changed. Certainly, from my perspective, what a great joy that is. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I do indeed thank you that you are willing to to look at us, people who would just be confused or in rebellion, and instead come and save us. We thank you, Lord, that it's not just a fact that you look at us and save a piece of us for eternity, but that you are willing to transform us even now, to allow that river to be flowing into us and through us, uh, to allow us to be transformed, to be more and more in your image. And so we do, we pray that we would be these witnesses of the dramatic changing power of you in our lives. Lord, where we have tried to erect walls and and reduce that river to a trickle, I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would be taken down. I pray, O Lord, that we would open up our lives to you and that you would do what only you can do, which is to change us and save us and bring life where there could only otherwise be death. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would blossom by being fed by that river, I pray. In Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen.